I don't know about you, but there are certain passages in Scripture that uh, are a little less enticing than others. And this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, because of the word discipline, tends to bring certain things to people's minds. I don't know about you, but the word discipline ordinarily to me is kind of a negative term. But it's not used as a negative term in this passage, as it isn't in a lot of places in Scripture. And uh, I want to work through the entire chapter with you. Now, whether or not we can do that this morning in one shot is, uh, is yet to be seen. But we want to work through this chapter because in it is, for I think some of you, a real paradigm shift in understanding the nature of Christ's ministry to us, his continuing ministry to us, after he has saved us. It's easy for us to think of him only in terms of initial salvation, and, and that's why I've wedded this together with the verse that you see there in Revelation chapter 3, with Jesus being the faithful and true witness. So I want to explore one of the most wonderful aspects uh, that's central to this marvelous salvation that we have in Christ and what he purchased for us with his blood. But to fully understand what we want to dwell on, we have to face some of the ugliness that helps us understand the beauty of what we're about to look at. And I'm going to make a statement here which for some of you may seem a little bold. Bear with me. Uh, scripture will bear it out. If you are not daily aware of the motions of indwelling sin in your own heart, I'm speaking to Christians here, and engaged in genuine battle against them, then you're not living the Christian life. The Christian life is always marked by battle, by warfare, and recognizing that sin still indwells us even though we've been justified by grace through faith in Christ. But sin still indwells us and we have been set at war with it. And we're going to have to grapple with it. Now, I know some of us would like to think, oh, I got saved, now aren't I pretty and perfect? No. No, that isn't, that isn't Christianity. Being born again is the starting point. But the goal is further down the line. And if we think of ourselves as, okay, I've been justified, and now I've got to pretend to everybody that I'm really nice and holy, you're going to live a fake life. You're not going to be an authentic Christian, and you're not going to be living the Christian life, because the Christian life opens you up to battle. It opens you up to war. Now, spiritual warfare isn't about beating the demons behind the bushes. It's about dealing with indwelling sin and the motions of that sin. And so if you're not aware of how sin works in your own heart, how deceitful it is, how its logic works against your mind, and you're not engaged in that battle, you're not living the Christian life. Now there's one thing that kind of mimics the Christian life in this way, and that is when we are aware of everybody else's sin, and we're at battle with that. But that isn't the Christian life either. The Christian life is dealing with our own sin and what's going on inside. Counterintuitively, and this may be counterintuitive to you, I know it was to me originally, the Christian does not grow less aware of his sinfulness as he grows in Christ-likeness. He grows more aware of his sinfulness. So you may be thinking, oh, 
as I've grown in Christ, I found out I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. Yes. And the truth is, you're a lot worse than you think you are now. You, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface. It's really ugly under there. I know this because it took nothing less than the eternal Son of God to die in our place to deal with that sin. If our sin was just surfacy, if there wasn't much to it, it wouldn't take Jesus to die for it. But it did take Jesus to die for it. So you don't grow less aware of your sin as you grow in Christ. You grow more aware of your sin. And so this is for some of you who may be thinking, I'm really doing well. I've been growing great in Christ. I don't think I've got as much sin as I had when I first got saved. You're deceiving yourself. This is the deception of sin inwardly. And in fact, you're going to keep peeling back that onion for years and years until Christ returns. So don't be afraid of it. That's reality. And jump in. We're going to see how this chapter, chapter 12, lines that out carefully. If you're not realizing your own sinful tendencies and exercised about how to deal with them, then one of several things is going to take place in your life. Number one... Either you're going to fool yourself into thinking you don't really need to deal with any serious sin in your life, and you're going to put yourself in a very dangerous place. Second Peter uh, chapter 1 deals with that, verses 5 through 9. I'm not going to take the time to go through that now. But many people deceive themselves into thinking, eh, I'm doing okay. And in the process deceive themselves into letting sin run rampant in their lives. Now, sin, I, I know we're all thinking of other people's sins, but I want you to think about your own sins in this and your own sinful attitudes, the things inwardly that produce the outward symptoms of the actions of sin. Or maybe you're not actively engaged in the Christian life that you were designed to be living in Christ. Maybe you've just kind of stepped back for a while. You said, you know what, I don't want to have to deal with that stuff. I don't want to think about myself that way. And you're either deceived or distracted or maybe derailed. And that happens for a season, and we need to catch ourselves and come back into the battle. Uh, Get back in gear, start to move in that way again. Or, and I'm going to throw it out here, maybe you're not born again at all. If you're not aware of sin working in your heart and of the depths of it, chances are you're not a believer. Because if you don't know how sinful you are and that you need a Savior, you don't depend on the Savior. And so I'm going to ask you to find out today whether or not you even acknowledge or know the reality of sin working in your heart. And if you don't, I'm going to ask you to pray that the Holy Spirit would open that to you so that you know the depths of your need, so that you can know the wonderful salvation that comes through trusting in Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out what a great position he puts us in so that we can safely attack these indwelling sins that we're left with. But we'll, we'll unpack that as we go. One of the key signs that you may be in a dangerous place, as we've just been talking about this, and you can think about this for yourself, I don't want a show of hands, is that you're more preoccupied with other people's sins, failures, foibles, and peccadilloes than you are with your own. If you have time to point fingers at other people, chances are you're not dealing with your own sin. And now it's time to say, ooh, i got stuff in me to deal with. I'm so worried about the stuff that's going on in my own heart, I don't have a whole lot of time to be worried about what's going on in the other guy's heart. That's where the Christian life gets lived. But if I have 
turn this paradigm upside down, I'm really concerned about getting my wife straight with Christ more than I am walking with Christ myself. I really, I need to get that man I'm married to straightened out. No. You need to know how to live righteously with that crooked man you married. That's a different thing. So, this is, this is a whole different paradigm, and this chapter 12 leads us into this in an extraordinary way, and again, drawing from what we're about to see in Revelation, I'm just talking. So, all that being said, the writer to the Hebrews, by the time he's wrapping up this book, which he does, it's only 13 chapters, he's taking time at the close of this incredible exposition that he's given to re-engage his readers who, for whatever reason, have stepped back from, and let me use this phrase and let it sink into your heart, striving for the mastery. Because this is what we're after, is striving for the mastery. It's not, now I know it's more fun to go to some sort of a church service or see somebody we think is holy and have them pray for us and then get a glory zap that makes us what we want to be. But that's not typically the way scripture works. It's not the way the Holy Spirit works. We, in fact, begin to grow in holy skill in dealing with our inward person. And I know that's not the way we ordinarily think, but it is precisely what he's communicating in Hebrews chapter 12. So in this portion, he unpacks what our relationship to Christ is in our struggle against sin so that we're helped in it rather than hindered. Let me step back to something we've covered multitudes of times here, but bring it to your remembrance again. You have to remember, as a Christian, that the goal that God has established for your life is to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, if you have some other overarching goal in your life, you cannot live the Christian life. If your goal is to be financially secure, more than to be conformed to the image of Christ, you're going to stumble. If your goal is to have the perfect marriage, or the perfect kids, or the perfect family, more than to be conformed to the image of Christ, you're going to be shooting down the wrong arrow. We've got to be called back to this, because this is what Christ has designed us for. We were made in His image, we fell in Adam, we have aggravated our own fall in our own sins, and by His wonderful call to salvation, He's saying, I've made you a new creature, now let's start this incredible process of moving you from a fallen sinner to the full-blown image of the character of the Son of the living God. And let me tell you, that doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen easily. There's going to be struggle and pain and battle in the process. But he is on our side and engaged in the battle with us. He's not struggling against us in it. And unless we grasp that, unless we know that Christ is on our side as we pursue this battle against sin, we're going to find ourselves always in a, a strange place with him. Ooh, I've sinned, I can't go to him for help. No, because I've sinned, I go to him for help. And, and that's exactly where our relationship 
remains. So, this passage, chapter 12 of Hebrews, divides itself up into five portions mainly. That's how we're going to look at it this morning. First, I want you to see the framework, which is going to come to us in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll progress through the rest of the chapter. And the framework is that he's assuming you know, as a believer, that you have been put into a race, and that you only enter a race for the purpose of winning it, running, getting to the end, completing. So look at these opening verses, uh, verse, cha- verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, and he's going to come and help us get some good stuff here, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So as Christians, we're in the race. If you're not a believer here today, you're not in the race yet. We want you to get in the race. We want you to know the joy of sins forgiven so that you can move into the joy of conquering sins. But you've got to go to the starting place first. And so he mentions to us, that's the basic idea here, but he mentions this to us, so that we understand first that others have run and won, and they really messed up in the process. Uh, Chapter 12, I know this may be an astounding point of biblical exegesis for you, chapter 12 begins at the end of chapter 11. That's really important, because in chapter 11 we have what's ordinarily referred to as the roll call of the heroes of faith. And there you have these people, he outlines all these people that have done incredible things by faith in their lives. They've really trusted the Lord's promise and moved on accordingly. But the people that are cited are some real mess-ups. Matter of fact, back up to chapter 11, if you've got your Bible with you, and go back to verse 32. I find this absolutely fascinating. He's, this is the great cloud of witnesses that verse 1 is referring to. It's all the people that we had in, in chapter 11. What more shall I say? Chapter 11, verse 32. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. What a motley crew. Now most of us have mythologized about David that he was so special, but he's got his issues. Notice the ones that the author points out to us here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, Gideon. Gideon was a lily-livered coward. Not only that, he thought of himself as being completely unable to do anything in the kingdom of God. God used him, but used him through his faithlessness. So much so, and I know we all like to use that passage out of Judges that tells us about Gideon to use a fleece for decision making. The fleece makes God angry. It was his fifth attempt to get out from doing what God wanted him to do. It's not an, it's not a paradigm for how we're to make decisions. It's a rebuke against us, reminding us how patient God is, even though we keep doing things that are really dumb. So he mentions Gideon, who's, when God comes to him and says, hey, oh mighty man of valor, Gideon's going, huh? Who? No, no, I'm the least in my father's house, which is in the least of the tribes of Israel, and you're thinking about somebody else. 
And then he goes through this long stream of, well, prove it to me, prove it to me, prove it to me. God goes through it five times. And then Gideon knows he's stretching it when he gets to the second time with the fleece. And he says, okay, now don't be angry. He knows he's pushing the envelope, and God finally says, okay. But he has to get him to move. Gideon's a very reluctant servant, but God used him. Uh, Barak is worse. He's a coward in a high position. He's a general of the army, but he won't go into battle unless a woman goes and leads him first. What a mess up. And yet he's listed here as one of the cloud of witnesses of how God has used him in his life. Uh, Samson, a guy who really struggled with immorality and a whole lot of other things, who ends up messing up his life to the degree that only in his death that he's, does he really fulfill the things that God has called him to. Very strange character. Jephthah makes weird oaths that should have never been made that result in the sinful death of his own daughter, and God mentions him here as one of those witnesses. David, adulterer, murderer. Samuel, the poster boy for failed fatherhood. Isn't that an interesting collection of people? And yet, the author to Hebrews, by the power of the Spirit, points back and says, I want you to know that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a bunch of people who really blew it. And God used them because they believed him. Now, that's not a condoning of their sin. It's saying that God uses sinful vessels. And it's a call then to do away with our sins so that we can be even more useful. Number two in this, again in verse one, therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Sin is what's being dealt with here and we need to deal with it in our lives. So we've got this this group, but he's reminding us that the only way we can win this race is if we actually begin to deal with our sins. Christian, are you consciously grappling with your sin, or are you hiding it even from yourself? The writer won't let us go there. He says, no, no, we've got to lay aside those sins. So I know when, as soon as I started mentioning personal sins, something popped into every one of your heads. You all know you've got something you're grappling with. That's just the one on the top of the pile, by the way. The pile's really, really deep. And that's just the first one that floated to the surface. When you get rid of that one, you're going to start dealing with others. And they're going to get scarier the deeper you go because they're going to be more internalized and more hidden. And that's okay. Because he saved you so that you can safely attack your sin without fear. It's exactly part of the process. So, winning the race includes dealing with sin. And also in verse 1, winning the race requires endurance. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You cannot win unless you endure. It isn't who starts the race, it's who finishes the race. And if we want to finish this race, we're going to have to endure it. We're going to have to persevere. And it means we're going to slog through a lot of ugly stuff inwardly. And fourth, the goal is participating in God's own righteousness. I want you to jump ahead just a little bit to verse 10. Because there's an astounding reality given to us here. 
For they disciplined us, talking about our human fathers, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. To what end? That we may share his holiness. The word share there is the idea of participate in. That we might begin to operate out of the same holiness God does. Now, what kind of holiness does God have? He does what's holy out of his nature. It's just what's natural to him. God's goal for you, Christian, is that someday you will operate out of holiness as naturally as God does, rather than operate out of sin. That's a pretty lofty goal. But I want you to know that's what he has purposed for you. That's where he wants to take you. That's his intention And that's why you need all the stuff that's given to you here, because that's where he's leading you. And it's a wonderful, it's a mind-boggling thing that we might become partakers, participants in God's own holiness. It's remarkable. And yet this is exactly what he's after. Now, in this, as we understand that this is the framework we tend to relate to Christ in the midst of all this in one of three ways. First, many of us want a cheerleader. We just want somebody to tell us, you're doing great, keep going, you're going to be okay. You can get that drivel anywhere. You can get it from Tony Robbins. That's, that's not what we need is a cheerleader. Although it's fun to have cheerleaders. Uh, they've got, you know, Spartan spirit. Uh, those of you that are SNL fans. Uh, but Christ isn't here to be your cheerleader to just get you, boy, you can make it. I know you can make it. That's going to be included, but we'll see it's different. Some of us relate to him more as a judge. This is where we get our idea of discipline. But judges do only do one thing. They condemn. That's it. They don't cheer you on. They just tell you what's wrong, and they condemn you in the process. And then there's a third paradigm. That's a coach. That's somebody who comes alongside and lays hands on you and says, let me show you how this is done. Let me do this with you. That's an important reality. Now, depending on which of those three images you have in your mind, that's how you're going to approach this chapter. You're going to see the word discipline either... And this is interesting because in the Greek, the word paideia there for discipline is taken two different ways. It's used for the idea of chastening, like a a spanking, and it's used in the idea of instructing or training. The usage of training is what's being used in this passage, not punishment. And we're going to come back and work through that. So if you've always thought of this passage as dealing with God cracking you upside the head, you have missed this passage and you can't take any advantage of it. And I want to move you from that to a whole different place. So you're going to have one of these three images in your head. John, you want to get the sound ready? And, and in the process, it's going to change how you read this passage and how you interact with it. But I want to show you something first. Uh, cheerleaders make contestants feel good, but they do nothing to help them do better. Judges pronounce condemnation, but don't help you do better. Coaches or trainers believe that you want to arrive at mastery, and so they come alongside to help you get there 
And this is what Christ does in his continuing ministry as the faithful and true witness. He always tells you the truth, and he's faithful to tell you the truth, so that he can move you to the mastery over sin. Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer is one of my heroes. He was the drummer for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer back in the 70s. Um, I showed you that because Carl Palmer, in an interview, uh, they said to him, what do you do when you're not on the road playing with the band? He said, I'm studying with a master. Because what you just saw isn't just talent, it's skill. And what we never think of in the Christian life is that overcoming sin takes skill. The talent is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The skill is developed as we learn to walk in the power of the Spirit and begin to, to in prayer and in the study of the Word, develop the things that are necessary for actually grappling with our sin and getting strategies and abilities to deal with particular sins. Now, we don't think of that ordinarily in the Christian life, that we need skill, but we do, and this is exactly what he's after. This is what this 
passage is after. Now, there's a second portion here. It's in verses 3 through 10, and that is reliance. Not only do we need to get this framework of we're in a race, and that race is meant to have the goal of our being fully conformed to the image of Christ, to participate in God's own holiness, but the passage then calls us to look at Christ. Verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And I'm going to substitute a word here, which is the way we want to work through the rest of the passage, so that you get the point. My son, do not regard the training of the Lord lightly, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord trains the one he loves and chastens, chastises, every son whom he receives. It is for training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not train up? If you're left without training, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who trained us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they trained us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he trains us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, the first thing he wants to remind us here is that our coach, and I don't want to use that term lightly, I want to use it properly, the way it's used in the, in the passage here, that as I'm learning to grapple with sin, I am first and foremost to consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. My coach, the one who is leading us here, our faithful and true witness, he's already a champion himself. He has won this. He knows He is the master from whom we learn the art and the skill of mastery. This is the one we go back to over and over and over. And we look at his life and we understand how he walked in the anointing of the Spirit. And we watch what he did. And we consider that as part and parcel of growing in our grace. And note too what he says here because some of us are inwardly, secretly, quietly, maybe even subconsciously saying, yeah, but you don't know. The other people in this church, they don't have it as rough as I do. Great, you didn't have it as rough as he did. It's that simple. Think about this. Think about the one who endured such hostility against himself. The idea isn't so much of personal persecution there. The word hostility has to do with he was constantly swimming against the tide of humanity. Nobody was on his side, really. They didn't get it. And he lived in that. You say, well, I don't have a mentor to help me get through. Yes, you do. He's right here. Consider Christ. But I want somebody else to help me. Consider Christ. You've always got somebody you come back to, and he's been there, and he's been through worse than you have. And it's because he has that he has the wherewithal to minister to you in your need. He won't leave you alone. He won't leave you without counsel. So, 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Now, remember, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Take his ministry in your life seriously. Don't forget what he's doing by the power of the Spirit. He's training you for holiness, to participate in Christ's own holiness. And don't take that lightly. He's dealing with you. He's dealing with you as a son. In the old agrarian culture that we have here, when this was written, every father taught his son how to work the farm, how to do the family business. If they were merchants, they taught them how to buy goods and how to sell at a decent profit and how to weigh things out. They taught them what was necessary. And it's exactly the picture that's being used here. Earthly fathers trained you for those things. Now your heavenly father's training you for your vocation. That you may be a participant, a partaker of the fullness of the holiness of Christ. And note that his discipline is never Empathy, reprimand. This is one of the most mistaken things that parents do is that we simply yell at our kids and we don't train them. And we think then that that's what God does to us. He just spanks us and lets us go. Or he just yells at us and lets us go. Never! That doesn't train you to do anything except to stay away from your, from your parent. Training involves Hey, that's not working right. Let me show you what does. Now, it may involve a reprimand as well. That's what a good coach will do. He'll say, hey, man, you're doing that wrong. But he'll always say, now let me show you how to do it right. Because my first desire is to see to it that you gain the mastery. I want to bring you along. I want to bring you to that place. He never disciplines in that way. So the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Again, the word discipline there isn't the Lord beats the one he loves. He disciplines, he trains, he instructs, he brings you up, he's nurturing you along. And yes, he chastises every son he receives so that when you get too far out of line, he will will draw you back. He's wonderfully, he is the faithful and the true witness. He's not going to lie to you about your sin. He's always going to tell you the truth. Your sin's bad. It's worse than you think it is. And he's the answer. And he's faithful. He never stops this work. You might not go to the lessons, but he's always there. Always. Because he loves you. He wants you to enjoy holiness the way he does. And he is bound to determine to help you develop the skill to walk in that during this life. It's an astounding reality. And lastly, access to his coaching is the privilege of sonship. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Verse 7, God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? What dad here doesn't eventually teach their son how to walk, how to feed himself, how to drive a car, even though it may scare the liver out of you? You still teach them. It's what you're after. You want them to be able to grow up and do well without you. 
And you can't set that aside. Take note. This is, this is how he's working. He is a champion. He lived in this life. He knows what it means to struggle. And he's had it tougher. He resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood on the cross. What was the sin that he was resisting? Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Even Peter telling him just before he died. Oh, you're not going to die that kind of a death. Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to resist that sin to take self and pleasure above fulfilling the Father's will for the purpose of saving lost people. He resisted to the point of the cross. What a Savior. And he seldom brings any one of us to that place. So take him seriously. Listen to what he's doing because this is, this is the Savior of your soul who's entering in. And he'll never just yell at you. I know our earthly parents sometimes do, but not him. He will always take us in hand and show us this is how it's done. Let's move. Let's do better. I've put my spirit in you and I can show you and it can work. And this is because we're his children. All of his efforts are aimed at your mastery. That last word dropped off the screen. Mastery. He loves you and wants you to have victory over all those things that have bound you. All those things in your heart and mind that you're excusing, justifying, running from, hiding from. All those attitudes against others. All those doubts, those fears, those, those things that we read in in that incredible chapter, and we're going to have to wrap up here. Our time is, there's no way I'll be able to finish this today, so we'll have to come back and finish it next week, God willing. There's so much here in this passage. Uh, remember this passage out of Galatians? Uh, the works of the flesh are evident. These are the kinds of things you're struggling against. Sexual immorality. Interesting that it heads the list. Impurity. Sensuality means living by the senses. What I feel, what I hear, what I, what I feel inwardly. I've become a sensual person. I, I only go by those, those externals and those internal feelings. Uh, idolatry. Looking to someone other than God for your satisfaction, for your joy, for the end of your fear. Going to some other person, some other place, some other thing. To find relief from the pain, from the heartache, from the emptiness. Rather than coming back to Him. Sorcery. It's an attempt to manipulate God. How many of us as Christians are using our prayer lives to try and manipulate God? We pray about other people because we want other people to change to be nicer to us. And in it, we've become sorcerers. How do I fast long enough? How many scriptures do I have to read? How many times do I have to attend church to get God to hear me about fixing that person over there? That one I'm married to. That one I gave birth to. That person I work with. That's sorcery. But that's 
one of the works of the flesh, one of the things we've got to fight against, one of the struggles that maybe you have, maybe, maybe yours is enmity. Always clashing. Maybe it's strife. Just don't get along with anybody. Maybe it's jealousy. How about fits of anger? I know the one I always liked for that. I'm Irish. Irish people are angry. No, that's sin. And Irish people have sin, too. Right? It's fits of anger. Maybe that's yours. Maybe it's envy or rivalries or dissensions or divisions. Maybe it's drunkenness or orgies or, as he says in Galatians 5, just things like these. The list is endless. Now, he's calling us, bringing us, as the faithful and true witnesses, the one who comes along to minister to us, to gain mastery over all of these things. And his goal is that you might share in God's own holiness. So are you in that process, beloved? You've got somebody on your side. He will never just stand there as a judge and say, Stupid. Horrible. I know I've used the, the illustration before. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll probably have a little graphic on it next week. And let me just give it to you now in advance. What do you do with a little child that's learning to walk? Say, come on, come on, come on, come on to me. Right, come on. No, what, what you do is you set them there on their own, and then when they fall down, you kick them and say, Stupid child. Born, carried you for nine months in my womb, you don't even know how to walk. Useless. Can't even talk to me. All you do is babble. Poop. What a mess. You think that's the way Christ treated you when you got born again? As a screaming little baby in Christ? Oh, what a mess. Oh, oh, terrible. You can't do it. All the thing wants to do is cry and eat and do other things that are unpleasant. No, he's never done that. From the very beginning, he's been training you. He's been coming alongside and saying, I'm going to teach you to do things so I don't have to change your diaper. I'm going to teach you how to feed yourself. I'm going to teach you how to walk. I'm going to teach you how to talk. I'm going to teach you how to read and write. I'm going to teach you how to minister to others. And all along, Not as a judge, nor as a cheerleader, but as this one whose grand design for us is to share in things, for us to share in things that are higher than we have ever begun to imagine. But beloved, this is the battle. It's indwelling sin. And it's a battle. It's a fight. Talking to somebody the other day, and we were mentioning this, and I will close here. And they said, it's so hard. Have you ever heard of an easy war? Uh, I haven't. Would I like the Christian life to be cruising? Yes, I have this problem. I'll go to prayer. It's solved. That's called a sitcom. You have a crisis, and a half hour or an hour later, it's solved. It's a cosmic crisis. 
I've been working through the whole Star Trek series, going back to the original and then all of the offshoots and working through it. Every week, it's just amazing. There's a cosmic conflict that's going to cause a rift in the entire universe, and it's solved in 60 minutes. Every week. It's amazing. And then we say, isn't that the way my life should be? No, nobody's life is like that. I've been struggling with this sin for 10 years. Yes. Keep at it. Fight. I've been struggling with this person for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, now see, God's using them to change you. And you're struggling against the change, not against them. This is where he's leading us. And it's so high and so lofty and gets lost in the mix. And then we forget to consider him. To consider him who's gone before us and on all these things and who draws us to himself and says, I will, by the power of the spirit that I've placed within you, I will develop the holy skills to deal with your sins. Strategies for those things that are within. We'll unpack that more next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you for the truth of your word and how you don't leave us to ourselves. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all this other stuff, to get sidetracked, to forget what you have saved us for, where you're leading us to, what, what great things you have in store for us. And then to look at you and the way that you deal with us begrudgingly, to falsely accuse you of being harsh or impatient or wanting too much from us when all you want from us is what you've put in us. And so I pray that your people will be encouraged today, that we will be um, encouraged to go out and to strike up the fight, to unabashedly look by the power of your Spirit through the lens of your Word at the sins that we have in our lives and begin to appeal to you to develop the skills to as your word says, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put those deeds to death. We can't kill the sin, but we can sure put away the way that it manifests itself. And we can do that because Christ is a faithful and a true witness. We give you praise for it in his name. Amen. Let's all stand.